So I said to the old Strotch, got a torch, please. And I shot it on the depth gauge. And we were 250 feet below where Oberon submarine should be. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Ian Roberts served in the Royal Australian Navy for 25 years. He earned the coveted Dolphins badge, marking him as a submariner. He went on to become the first Australian-born officer to command a Royal Australian Navy submarine. This is his conversation with Angus Horden about life under the waves. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm speaking today with Ian Roberts. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Ian, when and where were you born? I was born in Brisbane, in the Brisbane Women's Royal Hospital, on the 8th of December 1938. And did any of your family serve in the Second World War? Several uncles who served in the army. They served in Borneo and New Guinea. And uh, my father was in the Air Force, but uh, when he was doing pre-training in Townsville, he went swimming on the Barrier Reef and he picked up a bug which ate a hole through his eardrum. And so he was then confined to Australia for the rest of the war, and mainly Melbourne. And what were some of your favourite hobbies or sports as a child? Football, rugby. In fact, I made the um, first 15. And uh, cricket, I played cricket, yes. With your schooling, I understand your family were from the Darling Downs, and you went to Scots at Warwick. I did. And how long were you there for? 1948-1952. I was there, and we had a dormitory which ran alongside the road. It was timber, and it wasn't heated. So, yes, it was quite cold at times during the winter. But we didn't spend a lot of time in the Darling Downs. My grandfather ran a department store in Brisbane called Barry and Roberts. Dad went to Gatton College to pick up a bit of agricultural knowledge, and after an incident in Brisbane where the, the storm ruined his crop, he moved out to Cecil Plains and took me with him, obviously. Were you in the cadet corps? Because again, Scots was very good for its cadets. Yes, I was. Yes. And did the little trips we used to do down to the firing range and things down here in Brisbane. Being someone who'd been in cadets, who'd had family in the Army and Air Force, what inspired you to go into the Navy? Well, actually, my grandfather was a merchant seaman, and he ended up in Brisbane as the senior pilot and as the assistant harbour master. And he was also a lieutenant commander in the Naval Reserve during the war. And he was in Brisbane headquarters serving an intelligence side of things. So it was my grandfather probably that influenced me more than the the others. The army didn't, I didn't really see myself camping out in the middle of winter in some tent or in a sleeping bag. So no, Navy was the one that always intrigued me more. It's funny you should say that because my dad, who was in the Navy, actually said the same, that he knew that with the Navy, he was at least assured of a meal in a bunk. When did you actually join the Navy? I joined the Navy on the 24th of January, 1954. 
And where do you originally go for your training? HMS Cerberus, down in Victoria. That's where the Naval College was in those days, before it moved back up to Creswell. We were the 15-year-olds. There was another entry there as well, which were the 13-year-olds. And I'm glad I never ever joined at 13. So we had two years there. And at the end of that time, the old days, they used to go off to the UK and go on board an aircraft carrier or a cruiser and do all their sea time that way. It was changed. And so we then joined HMAS Swan, which was brought out of the retirement fleet over near Taronga Zoo. We got her going. We had to sort of scrape the decks and clean her up and paint her and make her look decent again. Then off we went for three months and we were the, then split into two groups. And so I was in the first group that went to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth to start doing our courses as midshipmen and then leaving there as acting sub-lieutenants in 1957. Ian, in those early days when you were doing your training, what was it like with the discipline with your Navy instructors? The discipline was was quite hard and it was not quite something I was used to because the term senior to you had a certain amount of right to discipline you as well, which uh, made life a little bit difficult at times. And fortunately, I was able to get some of my own back on them on the football field at a later stage. But you had to toe the line and do exactly as you were required to do and not to make any fuss about it. We've interviewed many great Navy men, and I'm sure you know Guy Griffiths. I mean, everyone knows Guy. But he was equally talking about how they used to dish out the punishment pretty freely on young kids, you know, like you were in your teens. And that discipline and and the sportsmanship that you then build playing rugby, he alluded to really sort of formed him and, and strengthened him from a very early time. Yes. Well, um, part of the punishment with the senior term can inflict was using a sand shoe on your backside. And so you tried to avoid that as much as possible. And particularly they, someone behind you when you were moving in a formation from the main college up to the sleeping quarters, which were up towards the west gate of HMS Cerberus, you had to be very careful that you didn't start looking around and seeing what was going on elsewhere because you'd be chastised then. Same thing was in the morning. You had to be out of bed and up and fill all the wash basins in the bathroom so that um, when the rest of them got up, the water was ready for them to splash on their body. And eventually when you leave Australia and you go across to the UK for your first courses back in 1956, it must have seemed like you were going to heaven going to those beautiful British naval institutions. Yes, well, I'll tell you about the trip first, because uh, we flew Qantas in a Boeing a Super Constellation. And so it was a fantastic trip because we had a night in Singapore in the famous hotel there, Raffles, all expenses paid. Then we touched down in Cairo and we went out to the pyramids and then on to London. We had a couple of days in London before we put in a train and off we went down to Kingswear, which is on the other side of the River Dart to Dartmouth. So we got the ferry across where we were met by two midshipmen, made us fall in, etc. And actually, I knew one of them and I discovered they were a bit anxious about us as being ruffians and would uh, not take too much cheek or nonsense from them at all. And we also subsequently found out that the police force there was increased by three constables when they heard a group of the Australians were arriving to take charge there. Yeah, so Dartmouth was a, a great place. It was set up on the hill looking over the River Dart. There were nice pubs there where we got used to English scrumpy cider. At least I didn't try it even, but some did. It's much to their subsequent unrest, you might say. Yes, so Dartmouth was a lovely place. It was a big old college. You've probably seen photographs of it. And so, no, we enjoyed our time there. Once uh, we got used to the gunnery officer and people like that who were asserting discipline over us got used to us. And did you get to play any rugby with these guys? 
I certainly did. And we played against the Army and the, the Air Force Colleges. And so, yeah, we played quite a bit of rugby there. Out of interest, what position are you? Breakaway, open wing forward. So how long were you actually in England? We left in almost in the middle of 1957. So that's 18 months, roughly. The other nice thing about it was we'd all just got our driver's licences, of course, before we left Australia. So we all bought cars, old second-hand cars, you know, sort of 100 pounds or something like that. We had leave, so we drove around the UK and, and had a great time. In fact, one of our fellows, his father wanted a brand new car, which he could then bring back to Australia duty-free. And so we went off to the continent in it as well. So yeah, we had a good time there. When you eventually come back to Australia, you're first appointed to the Cootamundra. Can you tell us about the mine-sweeping work that you were doing? Well, actually, we didn't do any minesweeping work at all because the, all the mines had been swept by then. So although she still had the minesweeping gear and occasionally we streamed it just for, for exercise, we were mainly involved in working with uh, the establishment that was established, HMAS Rushcutter, which did research. And so we spent a lot of time streaming out the sea, dropping a charge every five nautical miles. And like uh, one trip, we were down off South Australia, heading south into the Antarctic. And we had 500 miles down. I'm dropping these charges for the ship right inshore still, listening and recording it all. And then we did the Sahul Bank survey. And then another time we had, would you believe, a little ship like the Kudramundra. We had 60 trainees on board. We had a tent rigged up on the upper deck where the, the after gun used to stand. And I don't think they had a very good time, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but anyway, they were there. We went up through the Barrier Reef and over to Darwin and then did various things over there. And next, you were one of three officers on board HMAS Woomera. That's correct. The Woomera was an ex-army vessel which was used to supply stores to the troops up in uh, New Guinea and uh, that area. At the end of the war, she was the Navy decided they could use her. And what we did was we used to load old ammunition, those sorts of stores, and take them out to sea and dump them well over the 100 fathom line. And so we trudged up and down the coast between Sydney and Melbourne, carrying out that detail. And fortunately, I left her before uh, she caught fire and sank off Sydney. They were ditching stores, and one of the sailors who was doing it saw parachute flares, and he thought he'd have a look at one, and pulled it, and of course it ignited, and uh, the ship went down. And when did you meet your wife? I met my wife when I was serving on board the Woomera. The first lieutenant had a friend who was an ex-Navy Ram. My wife was a Navy Ram at that time. And she had a friend who had just arrived to serve in HMS Watson, who come up from Melbourne. They were invited to a party, but they had no vehicle to get there. And so it juiced me to go and collect the Ram who had just arrived and join them all up and head off to the party with them. And that's how I met my wife. Been married for 60 years. 16th of April, 1960. Well, I think you're another classic example, Ian, of a guy that got lucky marrying a woman who actually was in the services and could have an appreciation of the life that you were going to live and enjoy living that with you. Yes. Well, that's one of the things I did mention to her when we were getting to know each other well. And I said, you realise, because I'll be away lots of times. She said, well, I you're in the Navy, so I assume you will be. So fair enough. And she got used to it. Didn't actually like it all that much at times, of course, but got used to it. Ian, you actually had a go at the clearance diving school. Yes. 11 days after we were married, I flew off to the UK again to um, do the clearance diving course at HMS Vernon. 
I did all the diving side of it, but then I got a disease in my eye and uh, I was rendered permanently unfit for diving. So they asked me whether I wanted to stay on in the UK in case they'd cure or go home. But naturally, I said, I want to go home to see my wife. And so home I came. I joined HMAS Queenborough and the captain, when I was introducing myself to him, said, right, well, you'll be the diving officer, Ian. I said, you know, I'm unfit for diving. And he said, you dive, we'll cure you. I said, aye, aye, sir. And away we went. Trincomalee Harbour, I was sitting on the bottom of Trincomalee while I had made the divers do free ascents from the bottom up. I quite enjoyed diving after that. Ian, in 1964, you volunteered for the submarine duties. Well, that's the story in itself, because when I was in the Kutamundra, I was the captain's secretary. And one day he called me in and said, ah, sub, he said, you volunteered for submarines. And I said, oh, hello, sir. And he said, yes. He said, and so you'll be going off to have a bit of time in one very shortly. And I said, oh, thank you very much, sir. In due course, HMS Anchorite, which was part of the 4th Submarine Division, which was based in HMS Penguin, which is in the Middle Harbour in Sydney, was told to go and join her for a couple of months, which I did and quite enjoyed it. So time passed on and nothing more was said about submarines. And when people started being posted to the submarine course, I sort of rang up and just said, am I likely to be posted? They said, no, no, you're too old now. And I said, okay. And so I was then sent off to the Far East in HMAS Quiberon. And we were up in Singapore. And then I got a signal arrived on board saying I was posted to the submarine course. And I was to fly back to Australia, get my wife together and, and child and head off to the UK again. And that was for HMS Dolphin. That's correct, yes. That's where the submarine training was done. And you've had two sons and a daughter? Yes, and have any of them gone into the military at all? Well, my daughter's Fiona is uh, in the Air Force Reserve, so she's done a period in Afghanistan. But uh, no, my son wasn't all that interested in joining the Navy. And of course, we lost our other son, so we've got a son and a daughter. Oh, I'm very sorry. Ian, it's interesting, therefore, that you were posted to sort of submarine duty as opposed to actively seeking it and sort of fell into it. Yes, that's correct. In fact, I had sort of flying until uh, the captain of the Kutamundra at that time had changed. And so he said to me, oh, he said, I think they're going to do away with uh, the fleet air army unless you want to fly helicopters. And I said, no, thank you very much. Submarine training came up and away I went. Can you tell us about life at Dolphin, please? Because I was then a lieutenant with several years in, I wasn't one of the sort of sub-lieutenants that were the IRN contingent on the, the submarine training course. So it was quite pleasant at Dolphin. It was a nice, relaxed place. Wardroom was pleasant and we got on well with everybody. And of course, there are a few other Australians on the course, so I wasn't exactly lonely in that regard. Ian, can you tell us about your time after Dolphin, where you were then posted to Osiris? When I left Dolphin, of course, I went to HMS Narwhal initially to complete my submarine training on board, to get the certificates we needed. Having done all that and uh, acted as the torpedo officer there, I was then posted to HMS Osiris. Now, Osiris is named after an Egyptian god of the dead, as you probably knew. And she, her side number was S-13. Now, S-13 wasn't a very good number in the Royal Navy submarine service because one had been sunk in one of the locks in Scotland with the loss of quite a few of its personnel. So Osiris, but, but it was a modern submarine, and so away we went. We had a trip down to the Mediterranean where we were doing trials on the communication boys for the new Polaris submarines that were being built for the Royal Navy at that time. And so we were operating out of Gibraltar 
And one day, in fact, uh, we had some civilians on board who had all their equipment set up in the fore ends. We'd taken some of our torpedoes out to make room for this electronic gear. Anyway, we were in the control room doing various bits and pieces. And suddenly, these civilians rushed through saying, it's sinking, it's sinking. So we quickly established what was going on. And it turned out that um, one of the sailors in the fore ends had opened a valve, which he shouldn't have opened, which let a lot of seawater then into the, into the <laughs> fore ends of the submarine. This sailor actually was called Village. The coxswain named him that. And as in, uh, what does your village do for an idiot when you're not there? <laughs> And so in the Cyrus, we also did a trip over to Canada, doing an exercise in the north of Bermuda, which was good fun. In January 1967, you become the XO of HMAS Otway. Can you tell us about your experiences there? Yes, well, Otway was being built at the Scots Shipbuilding and Engineering Company in Greenock on the, the banks of the Clyde. Faye and I and Fiona rented a house in Largs, which was just down the Clyde, just before you get into the Firth of Clyde, and it all opens up. A very pleasant village. And so basically what I did was every day I'd go into the dockyard and just see how things are going and keep an eye on the various sailors we had there who were there to learn all about the submarine as it was being put together. And then I, one night I got a phone call from Australia to tell me that I was being moved from the Osiris because I needed more sea time to qualify me to go and do the commanding officers course. And so I left the Osiris and went to join HMS Oracle. And in 1969, you actually get to take command of an O-boat, the Oxley. Can you tell us about that experience? This commanding officer's course is actually in the Royal Navy is called the Perisher because not everybody survives the course and don't come out to the other end. In fact, but six of us had joined, three of us actually qualified at the end, two Australians, Ian McDougall and myself. I was then flown back to Australia and took command of the Oxley, which had come out earlier. She was the first submarine completed in, at Scots, and uh, she came back to Australia with Lieutenant Colonel David Lorimer in command. He was an RN officer who transferred to the RAN. So I came home and took command, and uh, I had a lovely two years, really, and including um, a trip up to the Far East where we visited you know, Singapore, Philippines, Hong Kong, did the usual things in the Far East. Actually, it's funny you just said David Lorimer. David Lorimer recently passed away, sadly, and he used to live here in Sydney at Linfield. So his family were very close to my wife's mother's family. And in fact, they had a boy at Knox in my year at school. And I remember him telling me about his submarine time. He was a very interesting guy. Without digressing too much, I recall he was the skipper on a famous British ship that had been locked up in China. And I forget the exact details. I mean, you, you may know them, but he was given orders to break out and did. Do you remember anything about that? Yes, um, vaguely. Uh, I'm try I can't remember the name of the ship, but another ship went in and sort of acted as a bit of a, an escort as well. Yes, and they broke out. He was very interesting. He was a very affable and friendly person. Yeah, got on well together. But I didn't see too much of him in Australia because I sort of relieved him and then off he went back to civilian life. It's significant that you becoming the CEO of Oxley because previously all of our submarine commanders had been Royal Navy, but you were the first Royal Australian Navy to take command of, an, of a uh, submarine. Yes, that's correct. So can you tell us the role that Oxley was actually designed for? What does an O-boat do? 
Well, an O-boat is basically designed to uh, sink enemy ships. It's got six torpedo tubes forward, and we had the old-fashioned Mark 8 torpedo, you know, so that's the one that made a lot of noise when it headed off, and you fired it from about 2,000 yards away from the target. And then we also had the anti-submarine torpedoes as well, which were very, very quiet and also could be directed after firing. They had a cable that was paid out, and you could direct them in the direct, uh, you know, where you wanted them to go if the target altered course and you could move, make sure the, the torpedo headed off in that sort of direction. So basically, of course, we were used to train the RAN ships in anti-submarine warfare. And so we acted as targets and used them as targets in various exercises off the New South Wales coast and up off Singapore later on. Ian, most people listening to our podcast would know nothing about life on a submarine. Now, may I ask, how tall are you, please? I'm five foot nine. You're closer to six feet than five feet. Now, I'd actually served on Oxley. We'll come to that later. But it's not a particularly big boat. And I'm just wondering how guys like you survived on a big boat. And I've seen guys over six foot serve on these boats. Yes, well, I had no problems at all. Um, the first submarine I served in, HMS Narwhal, I remember waking up one night and going like this, and there was some timber on each, you know, opening my arms and banging. I had timber on each side of me. God, where am I? And up, yes, there's something up there as well. Then suddenly, oh, yes, I've got to slide forward to get out of this bunk. But uh, as captain of the Oxley, I had a, a little cabin, and so it was quite comfortable. And my feet, although they extended into the control room and they could bang the, the metal there if they felt like it to wake me up. I had no problems at all like that. Well, as CEO, you were the only one that did have a private cabin. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners again what life was actually like on a submarine. And, and it's not like the Collins class that we've had and the new submarines where you've got men and women serving. What it was actually like to live with, what was it, 50 or 60 other hands and just that confinement, that diesel smell and film everywhere. You got used to the smell because once you'd been on board in the sea for a few days, there was no smell. It was just ordinary things going on inside the submarine. In terms of confinement, the wardroom of the first couple of submarines that I served in, of course, there was, there was six people sort of sleeping there. And then in the day, the bunks were folded down and suddenly there was a table and settees around to sit so you could have meals and sort of boxes, the open side, if you know what I mean, like little lockers you could sit on top of. One of the things that was done before someone went to submarines is we used to take them over to Penguin, where the divers were, and put them in the compression chamber. And we'd pack them in, lower the pressure, and let them sit there for a while. And those that got agitated, of course, were never going to make it in submarines. And so that was the first part of the psychological testing. People got used to it. And, you know, they hop in their bunk and they'd pull the curtain and read or whatever it is they wanted to go to sleep. Couldn't smoke there, of course. You had to wait till someone got onto the loudspeaker system and said, one all round, in which case people had notes on the side of their bunks which said, wake me for one all round. Those drastic cigarette smokers. So you got used to life on the submarines. It was confined, but as I said, you got used to it. When you say get used to it, Ian, I know from my own experience, I found out what hot bunking meant. There isn't a bunk for everyone on the submarine. You share the bunk. So one guy would come off watch, you would go on watch, and you'd slide into his bunk, and it was warm from his heat. I was a sub-lieutenant when I was on Oxley. I had better quarters than the, than the ratings. But I remember you would slide into this thing and you couldn't roll over because your shoulders just couldn't clear the um, ceiling above you. 
And I can just recall how claustrophobic it was until you sort of got used to it, as you say. Yes, yes. There wasn't too much hot bunking when I was in Oxley because later on, of course, they, I think you had extra sailors on board for training. So we didn't have too much of that at all in the, in the early days because the, most of the training was done in the UK. And then the, the submarine, the tank training was also done there, the only the escape training. Did you do it at Stirling? I was posted on for only a couple of weeks when I was there. So I, I went back to Stirling later. What I was also going to ask is did you have much experience with the commandos, how the commando kayaks could be put in the forward hatch and then actually brought out and then deployed? Did you do much of that work? Yes, I did quite a bit of that work. And we went over to Western Australia and uh, did a fair bit of that in the sound off Stirling uh, with the commandos. And also uh, we were up in the Far East in the waters off Singapore. Royal Navy dropped the Marines into the water and I had to collect them. And I did that by, they got into their dinghies and so had a rope between them and I raised the periscope and then collected the dinghy and towed it to where I wanted it. Oh, great. And gathered them on board and then got ready to uh, discharge them. And some of them, of course, went out through the torpedo tubes. It always struck because I, I actually spent time with the commandos prior to Navy and the commandos, by coincidence, did a lot of the kayak work with the O-boats because they were in Sydney and the submarines were in Sydney. But it struck me as a loss that when we moved from the O-boats to the Collins class, there was no facility for um, the kayaks or the covert insertion work that the commandos would do. They just didn't rate that as being important in the current day submarines. And I feel that we sort of lost a bit of uh, capability there. Uh, Yes, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right there. It was a good capability to have because it gave the army a thing in their hip pocket that they could pull out and say, right, well, this is how we're going to get around that Mm -hmm. problem. The submarine will be in that area and we can uh, we can go ahead with that. Mm. And how many times in the Second World War do we know, especially of American submarines that were supplying materials or picking up some lost airmen somewhere? You know, the, the role the submarines played in that facility was well proven from the Second World War. Yes, that's correct, it was. Ian, can you tell us about the action that you saw on Quiberon? That was during confrontation when the Malaysians were getting involved and the Indonesians were trying to assume parts of uh, Malaysia. We escorted, in fact, the carrier that was carrying the troops to reinforce the people in Borneo. So we were their escort across to Borneo and then uh, we sort of patrolled up and down for a little bit. Ian, with regard to the Cold War tensions that were happening at your time. For example, I know you were following Russian ships, etc. Was there a concern at the time that anything could flare up? No, there wasn't. The Russian ship wasn't a hostile type ship, really. It was a survey ship. So uh, no, I've never been involved in any of those in an Australian submarine with any following of any of a Russian or Chinese or whatever ships. You eventually become the operations officer for the first Australian submarine squadron. Yes, I came ashore after uh, Oxley and uh, spent a bit of time running the operational side of things. That was organising the weekly programs for um, for the submarine after they submarines come in after a six week, six or eight week period, and then they do a period alongside where half the ship's company go on leave and the rest do maintenance. And at the end of that time, they go to sea and they're checked to make sure that they've forgotten nothing in that period. And that was one of my responsibilities as well. Every time you guys used to come ashore, 
the Navy used to put you up in good hotels, like a five-star hotel, versus the other surface ships, you know, may get a, just a standard two- or three-star hotel. And I remember it was explained to me, and I only appreciated it after I served on Oxley myself, that the hard times you guys go through, it was one of the perks they used to give the submariners. Do you recall that? Yes, I remember it very well. It was uh, very pleasant, in fact, to come into harbour and uh into a foreign harbour, or well, not foreign so much, and say, right, which hotel are we staying at? And off we go. It's a very special person who agrees to be a submariner. You're absolutely right there, and that's why I wonder with the 12 new submarines coming on, how they're going to manage to acquire all of the, the ship's companies that will yeah. be necessary. Ian, when you were CEO of Oxley, the problem of a submarine is that if you're submerged and something goes wrong, you've got that added dimension of how the hell do I get out of this? Like if, for example, you're in a destroyer and the engine stops, well, you're still floating unless you're about to be washed onto rocks. Did you have any close concerns or or any sort of dangerous times? I suppose I can mention it. When I was uh, promoted commander, went back to Platypus as Commander SM, the job I'd had before as Lieutenant Commander SM, but Commander SM. I used to go to sea in the submarines at the end of this maintenance period and just make sure everything was going well, as I did, you know, earlier on in, when I was a, a junior, more junior officer. But anyway, one night on board the submarine at sea, I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning and had this feeling. Didn't quite know what it was, but I got out of the bunk went into the control room, which was in red lighting and dark, as you can imagine, yeah. because it was the middle of the night. And so I had a look, and the plainsman was sitting there. He was quite happy and just staring at his depth gauge and seemed everything seemed right. So I said to the old Scotch, got a torch, please. And I shot it on the depth gauge. And we were 250 feet below where Oberon submarine should be. Jeez. And so I think my reply was, Jesus wept. They must have shaken the captain when I came into the control room because he was suddenly there leaning over my shoulder and you know, went into action and you know, fully together, full rise of the plane, emergency station, and up we came. So you just had this sort of sixth sense that would it be because you were down further than you should that the hull was pinging or? But it could have been that. The well, hull wasn't actually pinging, but it was sort of it was squeezing, I should think. Yes, there was something I don't know going what it was on. that woke me, but I had this feeling that I needed to investigate and see what it was. Well, well done. If you hadn't done that and something bad had happened and we'd lost all hands on, on one of our submarines, it would have been probably one of our worst maritime disasters. Gee. What had happened is that when they shut off for going deep, someone shut off the depth gauge valves by mistake. As far as the helmets was concerned, they were sitting at 250 feet, doing very nicely, no yeah. problems. The yeah. officer watch didn't have to do any trim changes. And meanwhile, they sank gently towards the bottom. We <laughs> sank gently towards the bottom. That actually draws us to another really obvious thing, which is obvious to us, but most people wouldn't be aware of how an O-boat or a submarine, for that matter, when she's on the surface in a bit of a swirl will roll like anything. But as soon as you pop under the water, how beautifully blissful it is. Can you share that? Because you've been on surface ships and you've been submerged. For those that haven't dived, they sort of don't get it, do they? No, they don't. If it's very rough on the surface, it's always a pleasure to dive. Off Bermuda, we had to surface once in the middle of an exercise and also in the middle of a Force 10. And so we got up on the surface and the submarine was really rolling. I was mm. off to the watch and the lookout was there and he said to me, Sir, sir. And I said, yes. He said, are we going to tip over? I said, oh, I, don't, I don't think so. He said, it's possible. And I said, well, look, when you see me throw away my skewering thing here and leap overboard, follow me very quickly. 
So with all your service, they're still not done with you and you're posted back to London. Yes, I was posted to the Royal Naval Staff College. But of course, I then had another job to come to after that because they were building HMAS Orion up in, in Greenock, the Scots Shipbuilding Engineering Company. And so after I'd done the staff course, then I went up to back up to Greenock, said hello to all the people I knew in, in Scots. Unfortunately, at that time that I arrived to, to get Orion ready to bring back to Australia, the Royal Navy or the Brits changed from imperial to metric. Now, in the process of changing the metric, they uh, built all of our electric cables to extinction. One day I was sitting in the little office I had in, in Scots and the phone rang and it was the captain of, a, of the Chilean submarine, which was doing sea trials. It was also an O-boat and so it had been built by Scots. They'd been out in the Firth of Clyde and up in the doing diving trials and those sorts of things. And he said, Ian, he said, I've got a problem. He said, I think you'd better come down and see it. He said, oh, and bring your electrical officer with you hurried very quickly down there to see what was going on. And so what had happened in the manufacture, when the cables went through bulkhead or through the, the hull, there was a course fitting that tied it down and kept it all seaworthy and stopped any leakage. Unfortunately, what happened was that all the lining in the electric cabling acted like plasticine. And so it spread. And so you didn't get any seal. And not only that, you didn't get any sonar. He had no sound coming into the submarine when he was deep. He didn't have a clue what was going on. So oh, he had yeah. to surface and get back into harbour and check it out. And so all the wiring that was in Orion had to be pulled out, which meant that it was delayed considerably. And so I had to pack up and come back to Australia. And when you come back to Australia, they then move you from submarines and you're back on to Perth, I understand. Yes, I was the XO of HMAS Perth, which had just arrived back from the United States, having been updated with the latest computer-type equipment for the fire control and for uh, tracking of targets and things like that. Now, this really highlights the flexibility of you as a typical Korean Navy man. You've been on submarines for how long now? 64 to 77, I suppose, and then uh, 76, rather, and then time in Perth, back into Platypus, and uh, I finished up there. But what I mean is a lot of time on a very specialised craft, and then bang, you're back onto the surface ships. So number one, there's the switch from the submarines to the ships, and then secondly, now I know Perth's obviously a much bigger ship than your O-boat, but you were CO on board your O-boat, and now you're XO number two on one of our frigates. How did you find that? No real problem adjust to that quite easily really when you've been in the navy that long you've been through all of these sort of files and so you're used to the fact that you may become a number two again in a guided missile destroyer yeah. i mean in fairness a much bigger vessel you complement what triple sort of thing but what was it like being above the water again as opposed to being below well i had to get used to a few things like you know transfers and but uh, basically it was pretty much the same ian you eventually leave the navy in March 1979. What prompted that decision? My next appointment was to the Joint Services Staff College, Canberra. And from there, I was told I'd go into Navy office or DEFNAV, or as it's called these days, and I'd spend a couple of years there. So the family didn't really want to move because um, A, my daughter and son had several schools by that time, and the daughter was getting ready to get to the final couple of years of her schooling. It seemed hard to move her then from all her mates there into a new environment in Canberra. So I thought about that, and then I decided I didn't really 
want to drive home from Canberra to Sydney every Friday night. And I certainly didn't then want to have to drive back to Canberra on the Sunday night, and particularly with a bit of pressure from my wife anyway. So I said, well, there must be something else I can do in life. And I resigned. How many years had you then spent in the services? 25 years. Yeah, fantastic. What have you been doing with yourself since? Uh, Well, of course, I'm retired now. Actually, until the coronavirus thing, I was getting phone calls from grandchildren. Uh, Granddad helping out in various things. I left the Navy and became the secretary manager of a golf club in Sydney, Pennant Hills Golf Club. Ian, it's been quite a story. I can see you up on the playing fields at Scots College in Warwick. I can see you in your position by the periscope of Oxley. And it's just lovely to hear this great story of incredible service to the nation. And thankfully, you got through it. It's a very dangerous occupation. And I always remember, you know, the guys that wear the dolphins. Can you tell our listeners what the dolphins are and what they mean? The dolphins mean that you've qualified as a submariner, you know the submarine, and you can be trusted to do your job. It consists of two dolphins, nose to nose, uh, with the crown sitting on top. I got my dolphins when we were in the UK, and the, much to the annoyance of the RN submariners who didn't have them at that stage. Yeah, so no, dolphins are a great thing, and it's, a, it's always a matter of pleasure to be able to present them to a sailor who was qualified and is now fit to join the, the full company. Ian, do you have any reflections that you'd like to share further with us? I enjoyed my time in the Navy. I enjoyed the fact that I saw a lot a lot of the world in so doing. Uh, the United States, I've been there. Hawaii, I've been there. The Far East, I've been there. Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, India, Pakistan. Been to all those places. And of course, you know, all well, around the Mediterranean and, and the countries up on the uh, English Channel side and across the, the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I enjoyed my time in the Navy. Uh, in many ways, I was sorry to leave. But anyway... That's happened, and here I am. Leon Roberts, thank you very much for sharing your great story with us today, and thank you for your service, and wear your dolphins with pride. I do. Thank you very much, Angus. If you want some idea of what it's like on board an O-boat, like Oxley, you can visit the Australian National Maritime Museum at Darling Harbour in Sydney and go on board HMAS Onslow. This was a sister boat to the Oxley. It doesn't capture the full experience. You won't be fully submerged or rolling around on the surface as Angus and Ian were discussing, but it will give you an idea of the size, or lack of. Angus referred to a Royal Navy sloop, HMS Amethyst, that Ian's fellow officer, David Lorimer, was on board. This incident occurred in 1949, during the Chinese Civil War, and was made into a movie in the 1950s. In Angus's conversation with Ian, he referred to Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths. For that interview, go back to Season 1, 2017, and listen to Number 4, Guy Griffiths. You put up a barrier of a very lethal amount of metal in the air. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. Ian and Angus also spoke about the Navy and Indonesian confrontation. For more stories on Confrontasi, check out Episode 2, Beginnings of our mini-series, Life on the Sea, which you can find at the end of Season 2, 2018. When they called action stations, I went to that turret. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. 
Follow us on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>